And it was interesting. So I used to talk to people in banks all the time. And I was like, wow, the, the, you know, the housing market's on fire. Why aren't more people building condos like we saw in 2002 to 2006? It just doesn't make any sense. Basically, the guy at the bank, he said, hey, look, here's how it works. We got burned really bad after 2006. So if you're going to put it out there on the books for the bank, you better not lose any money. That's going to have a long-term impact on your career. And we'll generally only do it for clients that we do other investments with, kind of just to keep them happy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science, but it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it, and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America and in the world, actually, invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes, which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives, and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investments and funds. To learn more about my company and invest in with me, visit www.bluelake-capital.com. Welcome to Ready to Scale Season 4. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to a special episode of Ready to Scale. I'm Jeanette Robinson, Director of Investor Relations with Blue Lake Capital. Today, our guest joining me is Mark Hickey. Mark is the founder of 4M Rentals for nearly two decades. He was a former economist and director of analytics with CoStar. And before that, he actually was a senior financial analyst for Wynn Companies. And prior to all of that, he began his career as a fund accountant. He has an MBA from Boston College and a BS in finance and economics from Syracuse University. And he is joining me here from Boston. So Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So I guess I'll, I'll dive right in. So I'm going to talk today about demographics and how they're going to impact you know, the demand for housing, both single family and multifamily. For those listening on the podcast uh, and for those on the YouTube, I'm probably going to have a lot of slides, but I'm not going to delve too much into the material on the slides because I don't want to make it confusing for podcast listeners. So if you're watching the YouTube, all the details you need to know are on the slide. Just hit the pause button. You can go through, you can see the sources, you can look at the subtitle, which will tell you exactly what is in each slide. Wonderful. Now, I'll get started. So let's talk about demographics. So back in the 1960s, people thought that we were going to have this huge population problem. People were talking about overpopulation, how we're going to feed all these people. And as it turns out, we're going to have almost exactly the opposite problem. And that is by 2021, population growth is going to come to a halt. Here we can see the population growth divided by continent. So only really Africa is going to have strong population growth over the next, call it, 75 years or so. And we're going to see that population growth in Asia is you know, shortly going to come to a halt. In fact, some say people say that it already has. And the reason why is that you know, China 
started a one-child policy, I believe it was back in the late 1960s. And they only got rid of that policy about five years ago. So they realized they had this huge problem that we don't have any population growth. They don't really have like 401ks and retirement plans in China. So a lot of times it's the child that's supporting the parent. And they said, okay, well now we've got one child, you know, basically supporting two parents. How are we going to make that happen? So they got rid of the one-child policy in 2015, but it didn't increase actually the fertility rate. People didn't have more kids at all. They said, oh, okay, all right, so let's make it, you know, then 2018, let's change that to three kids. And that didn't change the fertility rate at all. The short story is that it's now so expensive in China that a lot of couples decided, okay, look, realistically, we can only have one kid. And that's the same thing we've seen in Europe. And, you know, we're getting there in the United States as well. Now, Mark, can I interject for a quick second here? So when you say coming to a halt, that sounds like the end of humankind, that, you know, it's kind of scary there. So are you actually meaning that essentially population growth simply levels out and remains kind of at a consistent level without really seeing any significant increase? Or are we talking the end of mankind here? We're not talking about the end of mankind, (laughs) but we will see a decline. So I'll talk more about this again in the presentation, but you need a fertility rate. So the number of births per woman of 2.1 in order to have a an exactly level population. Right now in the United States, we're looking at a fertility rate of 1.6. Interesting. And, you know, same thing with Asia. So it is declining. You know, who knows what happens after the next 25 years, what happens, things could change, increases in changes in science, for example, in terms of intravenous fertilization, etc. But at least as far as we can see it, world population will soon start declining. Hmm, interesting. So if we look at the United States population growth by decade, you look at 2010 to 2020, right, you can see that it's the lowest growth of any decade going back to 1900. You know, we had a slow growth in the you know, Great Depression in the 1930s. We're now far below that. And if we look at kind of annual population growth in the United States, we can see the population growth really started to decline in 2016. And that is due to international migration. So like I was mentioning, our fertility rate, the number of births per woman, 2.1 gives you a flat population. We're now down to 1.6. So we rely on international migration. I'm referring to legal migration. And many of those workers tend to be educated. I don't have the stats in the entire United States, but we look at where I'm from in the Boston area, international migrants, about 27% of a master's degree or higher in comparison to 22% of the overall population in metropolitan Boston. So at least here in the Boston area, the international migrants tend to be extremely well-educated, usually working in the sciences. And obviously with 2016, when we had a different administration with a different policy, that was the reason why we had that huge drop-off in population growth. Right? So we need that international migration, which is a huge risk in the long term over the next 25 or 50 years. So if we look at population growth over the United States, it's not an even story. This is census data. And then if we were to see the areas in green are showing you know, population growth and areas in orange are showing population decline. The areas of population growth tend to be along the East Coast, a good portion of Texas, and the West in the United States. And the Central United States it really doesn't have the economic drivers to have that population growth. And, you know, 
essentially looks a lot like a political map if you've seen, you know, the voting by, by county. Ironic. Yeah. So if we look at population of the U.S. based on age, we can see some certain trends. And each bar in this chart represents, you know, the year that someone was born. So if we look at the millennials, they are a huge portion of the population. And within the millennial population, there's a larger group that were born in around 1990. So those people are getting about 32 years of age. And this is important both for the single family and for the multifamily markets. Now, this chart, I thought it was interesting in that people talk about, you know, which generation is the largest generation. And some people will say it's millennial. Some people will say it's Generation Z. But it all depends how you define it. So presently, we don't have a generation coming after Generation Z. They'll come up with a new cool name, I think, in like five years. <laughs> you can see, so according to this, they're defining Gen Z as a 20-year period, whereas millennials are only a 17-year period. And, you know, Gen Xs are 15 years, baby boomers are 18 years. So I think that at some point in the future, they'll slice off part of those millennials, make them part of a new generation, and millennials you know, will be where they belong in terms of the largest generation. So why all this talk about demographics? Why does it matter? So first, we can look at the economy and GDP growth. And this chart, if you're listening, kind of looks like a set of stairs. It's going down and down and down and down. So what we have here is GDP growth by each expansion. So in the 1960s, we had economic growth, or GDP growth, about 4.9%. Then went down to 4.3, 4.3, 3.6, 2.9. Now, if we looked at the economic expansion from 2013 through you know, 2019, the very beginning of the pandemic, it was only 2.3%. So basically half, or less than half, of what we saw in the 1960s. In fact, we won't get back to the GDP growth that we saw in the 60s, the 70s, or even the 80s. We simply don't have the population growth to drive that level of GDP growth. Very interesting. Why, why is that? Right. So we have to look at GDP. So 70% of GDP is personal consumption, right? People buying stuff. So if you were to look at population growth, and if you have a lot of kids, right, everyone's that sort of knows how much sheer volume of stuff that you need to buy, right? And, you know, if you have more kids, get more stuff, more population growth, people buying things, etc. And at some point, if we don't correct that problem in international migration, you know, a lot of these businesses like manufacturers, for example, have to figure out, okay, well, we can't really expand because our market is not expanding. We might be able to increase market share, but the market size is not increasing. And that's going to be, you know, a huge problem. So let's look at that you know, population by age a different way. This is people aged 20 to 34. And what we saw from 2006 to 2021 was the number of people in that prime renter group, again, aged 20 to 34, dramatically increasing. So when I used to you know, give this presentations to clients, whether they were, you know, banks or private equity investors, I used to tell them, like, look, it's a kid glove market right now for multifamily. It doesn't matter whether you build something in Boston or Buffalo or Albuquerque, right? Because of the demographics, the increase in the number of people aged 20 to 34, right? You always seem to be able to fill those projects. Now for the foreseeable future through 2036, the number of people between the ages of 20 and 34 
is going to decline, meaning you're going to have less people in that renter pool. Now, when did that happen before? Well, that happened in the late 1980s and almost pretty much all the 1990s. Not a fantastic time for real estate, but we were also hit by you know, a real estate-driven recession in the late 1980s or early to the 1990s, impacting mostly just the West Coast and the East Coast. Now, if we end up with the same scenario where we have a you know bad real estate-driven recession over the next 10 to 15 years, then that would be bad. However, I'll talk more about this towards the very end of the presentation. We aren't presently building enough either single-family supply or multifamily supply, so the demographics aren't as big of a problem. But kind of the long story short is it's going to be harder to make money over the next 10 to 15 years than it was over you know the past 15 years or so. Not impossible, just harder. Right, right. The market has definitely shifted. But interesting. So you're actually saying that even though we're having a decline in population, we equally have a decline in the supply of housing to begin with anyway. And so, you know, does it almost neutralize it? Well, we don't actually have a decline in population yet. What we have is kind of a flatlining. We're going to soon be in terms of a world decline in population, but the United States is still population growth thanks to the international migrants. So basically, you're looking at kind of flatlining overall population growth, and then within that, declining population growth as the millennials get older, them being the biggest generation, and kind of age out of that 20 to 34-year-old bracket and move on you know, into their 30s and early 40s. Mm. So how do we get here? And I talked a little bit about this. So let's look at the fertility rate. So back in 1955, we had a fertility rate of 3.8. You can say another way, the average family had almost four kids. Today, you know, we're looking at 1.6. And again, you need a fertility rate of 2.1 in order to maintain a, you know, flat population. And, you know, a lot of it is because, you know, things have gotten more expensive. I mean, education obviously plays a part in that if you look at the Average age of a first-time college-educated mother is all the way at age 33, right? And you only have, you know, so many years of, you know, fertility to work with. That's what we talked about. Is this the doomsday scenario of, you know, population? We can't grow the population. Well, we could have, you know, changes in the technology behind, you know, in vitro fertilization. We could have a change in policy where the government starts giving tax credits to those people to use in vitro fertilization. But they tried that in the Nordic countries, and so far that hasn't spurred any population growth. Interesting. And if you were an economist, you would know that the when people talk about fertility rates, you know, the two you know, dire examples are usually Japan and Italy, and they have a fertility rate, you know, well below what we have in the United States. Again, two point one being flat population. So let's talk a little bit more about Japan and why demographics are important. So what I have here is housing prices in Japan, housing prices in the United States, and working age population in Japan. Now, it might look like housing prices, this chart is wrong in terms of housing prices in Japan because they're like, wow, they, they peaked in 1990. Oh, by the way, none of the data on any of these charts is real. It's not adjusted for inflation. This is all nominal. So said another way, if you bought a house in 1992 in Tokyo or a condo, Right. It still has not gotten back to that price back in 1992, you know, even not adjusted for inflation. Wow. 
by comparison, we can see that housing prices in the in the U.S. you know basically continued on the long even despite what happened in you know 2008 through 2011, and that housing price peak in Japan almost perfectly coincides with a peak in their working age population, which is about where we are now in the United States.、Hmm. Again, now Japan has a very anti-international immigrant policy, so they have basically almost zero international migrants as comparison to the United States. Again, we're talking about legal migration, not illegal migration. So we can do what Japan can't and change our rules around international migration to get more people in. Where I think that'd be much harder culturally for Japan to put it. And I was looking and looking and looking, trying to find updated stats on international migration, and I can't really find anything that was updated over the past couple of years. There were huge cuts in the Census Bureau. They're not doing as much as they once were. Even despite the new administration, they haven't seen an increase in funding. So the best that I can find is the number of foreign-born people in the United States, and you can see that it really started to decline, and we aren't really back to where we should be. So we have this gap of, call it, four million people or so that we additional people that we should have in the United States if we had had international migration. Only like we had from 2009 through 2016 or so.、Hmm. Now, when I used to give these presentations, it was almost like doing a stand-up comedy routine, and that eventually people would ask like the same thing every time, and you would have this, you know, like, oh, okay, well, now let's talk about this because at this point in the presentation, everyone talks about that. So let's talk about some myths that I always used to get, and people would say, Mark, what about this? What about that? What about that? And I guess kind of the first myth to show you, you know, just kind of the how myths permeate throughout an entire culture. Believe it or not, Napoleon was not short. <laughs> He was actually a little bit above average. The reason why we today perceive him to be short was because of an English cartoonist in that time period, where the only if you were the English newspaper, you'd see these always things of. You know, basically, Napoleon being a small, impetuous child who was always throwing a tantrum, and that's how people in the UK and thus the rest of the English-speaking world kind of view Napoleon as being short. Also, every movie that you see with him having a French accent is not correct. Was, since he was born in Corsica, it was actually originally part of Italy, so he actually had an Italian accent, not a French accent. In fact, his the other officers. In the French army, used to make fun of him because he talked with an Italian accent. And since it's October, kind of one more myth. My daughter, a couple of years ago, in the very beginning of the pandemic, asked me, "Did Dad was there ever a time where you didn't go trick or treating?" I said, "Yeah, you know what? There was one time in kind of the early 1980s, and everyone was worried about poison candy, razor blades, and apples, and things like that. So we decided to have kind of an indoor party with 25, you know, kids, which I'm sure was insane for the parents of 25, you know, <laughs> boys running around." <laughs> But looking it up later on, poison candy is a myth. There's never been a case of someone poisoning someone else's kids with Halloween candy. There have been cases of people poisoning their own kids, but not somebody else's kids. So two kind of myths about you know people always talk about. So let's let's bring that into perspective in terms of the real estate world. So people always just tell me millennials, Mark, they're getting married later, right? And yes. Yes, that is true. 
but it's not a, a J curve, right? We can see here, if we look at the average age, first time marriage for a man and for a woman, right now it's about 30 to 31 for a man and about 28 to 29 for a woman. And I was actually shocked that you go all the way back to the 1890s and how old it was. I thought they really got married at, you know, ages like 15 and 20, but it was actually, you know, 21 and 26. And what's also interesting, it's been a kind of a consistent gap over time. It's narrowed a little bit. It used to be about four years between a man and a woman, and right now it's about two years. But again, people wish to say, Mark, millennials, they don't want to own anything. They're getting married later, et cetera. They own the student debt, which is another thing that if you look at student debt in terms of buying houses, as we get off a little tangent, that the lowest default rate for student debt is the people with the most amount of debt. So if you got $100,000, $200,000 in student debt, your default rate is the lowest. Why? Because if you have $100,000 in debt, right? You went to medical school, you went to undergraduate and graduate school, you went to dental school, you're an attorney, something like that. So where is the highest default rate? It's people with less than $10,000 of student debt. So those are people that either started college or more likely started a community college and thought they were going to get the salary to pay that off and never did. So the whole thing about student debt and making it impossible to afford a house is not true. It makes it a little bit harder to maybe save for the down payment, which is why we see in urban metros, the average age of first-time buyers are a little older, which I'll talk about in a second. But student debt is not this big mountain that people believe that it is. Now, real quick, I am curious to interject a little bit. What about the trend of, you know, those that are going into retirement, a downsizing and, you know, selling their homes and preferring to move into more community-oriented spaces like multifamily? Is that indeed a myth or is that true? That is absolutely true. To me, the question is, how many more people are there that can do that? And Again, because I'm familiar with Massachusetts, let's, let's talk about Massachusetts. So a lot of times, now if you're selling a house in Wellesley, right, and you're looking at, okay, it's a million and a half or two million, well, great. You know, you can sell that house and you can rent, or maybe you can rent for a little while and then decide to buy a condo downtown for, call it a million, right? Sure. So you had a million and a half or two million dollar home in Wellesley, which is kind of a, where the highest incomes are in Massachusetts then you could buy the condo downtown. But for a lot of people in the United States and for people in other areas of Boston, you're looking at, okay, if I'm going to sell my house, it's worth 500000 and I'm going to buy a condo worth this 500000 well, they're, they're kind of the same. I, I really don't save any money. And, you know, I'm comfortable in my house. I will probably stay in my house or being forced to stay in my house because I simply can't afford anything else. And you might have some people that, could switch areas, or so will they move from areas like Massachusetts and sell their house and move to some place like Florida, where you could buy something for much cheaper? And I think a lot of times people are you know buying and then selling, or they're selling and then renting for a fixed period of time with the idea of buying later on. So I think whether eventually the condo market is very important in terms of you know where the rental market is that they move into. Interesting. So I don't know how many more baby boomers there are that can move into these condos and thus create the rental market, the short-term rental demand. And it was interesting. So I used to talk to people in banks all the time. And I was like, wow, the, the, you know, the housing market's on fire. Why aren't more people building condos like we saw in 2002 to 2006? It just doesn't make any sense. 
basically the guy at the bank, he said, hey, look, here's how it works. We got burned really bad after 2006. So if you're going to put it out there on the books for the bank, you better not lose any money. That's going to have a long-term impact on your career. And we'll generally only do it for clients that we do other investments with kind of just to keep them happy. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, you know, how much money we make, you know, if someone has a construction loan for a condo and then they sell all the condos, we really don't make a whole lot of money. We make, we make more money if someone's doing a multifamily project and we do the construction development and then that turns into, you know, permanent financing. Right. And we're good. But if someone, if the condo project, right, ends up being a long-term loan, that means we had a problem because those condos aren't selling. Mm-hmm. And that's why you're basically seeing that a lack of condo development and what condo projects you are seeing within usually might be only like 10 to 20% of a multifamily building. So the bank is kind of happy with it. So you can get the financing. Because usually what they'll do is they'll increase the size of your down payment. As a you know, real estate investor, you go, wait, what? I got to put this much down to do condo. And, you know, this much down to do multifamily. Well, that much down on the condo is going to totally kill my return. Sure. I need a higher LTV, so I'm going to go with the you know, multifamily financing. Hmm. Interesting. So another myth, you would say, like, people can't buy a house anymore. And this is a title from a Bloomberg article, and it says, Young home buyers are vanishing from the U.S. dated 2019, again, from Bloomberg. And then me being an economist, I'm like, chart, where's the chart? Got to find the chart. <laughs> and then I look at it, like, I mean, that red line there, that's almost perfectly flat going back to 1981, all the way through 2019, meaning that the average age of a first-time home buyer hasn't changed since, you know, in basically 40 years. Hmm. Right? And that's where the demographics are going back into play. So remember, we've had a peak of population in the United States in 1991, right? So those people are reaching, what, 31, 32, their prime home buying years. And, you know, if you're a multifamily investor in, you know, more expensive areas, well, you've got a little bit of a longer runway. We can see that the median age in some of these major metropolitan areas is higher. So an area like New York is 34. San Francisco is 37. I was surprised that Miami was as high as it was at age 36. So it's a little bit higher than the average age across the United States at 31, but not that much. And then to kind of combat the argument I always used to get, at least initially, you know, maybe call it five or six years ago when I was kind of giving a similar presentation, is the millennials don't want to buy anything. I was like, well, yeah, because they're 25, they don't want to buy anything. <laughs> right? So if we look at the homeownership rate broken out by age, we can see that's actually increasing for people under the age of 35. And that's kind of a little bit of game with the demographics, right? As the number of people in the United States in that kind of millennial cohort get close to 35, you'll see that homeownership rate move up. And then as the next generation comes through, right, and then the millennial wave is passed with the home buying, then you might see that come back down. And the next question I always used to get was like, homes are just too expensive. No one can afford a home anymore. And what I would say is, yes, Homes have absolutely gotten more expensive, and we'll talk a little bit about the tremendous increase in home prices we've seen since the pandemic. But you know, there's you know more factors than just the price of the home. We need to take the price of the home, interest rates, and incomes. Now, if you were to look at incomes across the United States, a lot of times they're flat. 
to people that were in manufacturing in Ohio, not adjusted for inflation, are making the same amount of money that they were making 20 years ago. But if you look in areas in these, you know, kind of dense urban areas like Boston, New York, San Francisco, etc., so to kind of throw a stat at you, I think it was in 1975, the incomes in the United States were about 8% above the U.S. average. Today, they're almost 100% above the U.S. average. So in these highly educated, you know, core coastal metros, and I would throw Texas in there too, especially Austin, you know, you have these highly educated people moving there, which is why we've seen that tremendous growth in Austin, that, you know, all those people from those tech workers are coming in there. Although I will say that there's more risk in the Austin market than there are in other housing markets. I throw Boise, Idaho in there as well. But, so let's get back to affordability. So for most of the past 45 years or so, people were spending an average of about 30% of their pre-tax income, not including taxes and insurance, on how much they were spending on a single-family home. And what we saw from 2008 to 2022 was actually that dip below. So kind of the all-time best time to buy a home was two periods. You know, call it 2011, 2012, where the average person in the United States is now only spending 20% of their income because incomes were rising, right, and interest rates were decreasing. And then again in, you know, 2021. So despite the huge increase in interest rates that we've seen over the past six months, Housing affordability, because incomes have grown, even despite housing prices growing, that we're now back to that you know, kind of long-term average of 30% of your pre-tax income. And if you love data and you want to go back to it, we can see that from 1980 to 1984, you were spending as much as 50 or 60% of your pre-tax income on a house because interest rates were 18%. That was a time period when it actually made sense to get an adjustable rate mortgage because your adjustable rate would actually move down over the next 20 years or so. And that is also kind of, I remember that in terms of from 1981 to 82, 83, in terms of looking at a high inflationary period, which dramatically ramping up how interest rates and the impact of housing prices. I'll talk more about that in just a second to keep that in the back of your mind. So let's kind of bring it home here and talk about housing prices. I, I love the Case-Shiller Index. There's many different indexes you can look at. Case-Shiller is more of a repeat sales index. If you were to look at, there's different indexes that are not repeat sales, and they have different biases in their data depending on high-end homes are selling versus low-end homes selling, or more homes in Texas selling versus more homes in San Francisco, etc. And you really get a lot of noise, where Case-Shiller kind of, you know, gets rid of all that normalized so most people look at kind of the overall level when they're looking at indices. But what it's better to do is look at year-over-year growth. And then we can kind of start to compare cycles. So this is the Case-Shiller Index. Now, unfortunately, I don't have the past two months. I've looked for the updated data. I get most of my the data on my slides from the St. Louis Federal Reserve. Uh, there's 12 Federal Reserves. They all have great data. St. Louis, I think, has the best interface. And this is the latest they have, and nothing else on the internet actually has anything more up to date. So it's only updated through the end of June. So we can see that housing prices have started to, the growth has leveled off. But the growth is tremendous. It's, you know, 20% year over year, right? We have never 
going back as far as we have case show which starts in 1987 we don't have growth this strong so i'll talk more in a second but you know our housing price is coming down mm, i don't know about that but i will say that growth is going to come down but growth has to come down from a huge number all the way at 20 percent right across the country looking at this Case-Shiller Index, uh, which is, I think, uh, the 20 largest metro or so, right? And another thing I used to hear is that, you know, well, home, home prices are getting more expensive, and, you know, therefore, people can't afford a home. So another way to combat that is to also talk about the home ownership rate. So if you look at the home ownership rate from 1994 to 2006 or so, the home ownership rate is increasing. What's happening to home prices over that time, they're also increasing. And the homeownership rate was decreasing from 2006 or so through 2017. And, you know, from 2006 to 2009, right, home prices were decreasing. So there's not a great correlation between the homeownership rate or people renting. You aren't necessarily priced out of that market as much as you might think. And a lot of the stories you read in the newspaper that I read the Boston Globe, the New York Times, Washington Post all the time, they talk about someone who couldn't afford a home. I'm like, yeah, okay, well, how old is this person? What do they do for a living? I'm like, okay, well, this person's a bartender or what have you. I'm like, well, I don't know if that guy was ever going to be able to afford a home, you know, especially one of these areas. I don't think they were ever actually priced out. I don't think they could ever actually afford a home to begin with. So what I kind of want to look at is, right, those millennials, those highly educated millennials, they're the ones that are going into that home ownership market, right? And they're the ones that are taking kind of those higher end, you know, rentals. So, you know, this might have less of an impact if you're doing what, you know, call it workforce housing. So not, you know, affordable housing, but people that are not college educated, that will always be in the rental market. There'll be less of an impact on that in terms of housing prices. But if we kind of look at, you know, kind of your mid to higher end rentals, you know, the just because housing prices are increasing, don't necessarily view that as, okay, well, people are going to be forced into the rental market. Now, I am curious, have you happened to study any data about how many millennials actually are higher educated? There tends to be at least a myth, maybe, maybe it's true, but, you know, essentially a rumor that a lot of millennials are are bucking the system. They're also not uh, going to college. They're not becoming higher educated. Do you happen to know if that's accurate or not? I haven't seen anything since the pandemic began. That might be true over the past, I can, over the past couple of years, people like, you know, look, if I had to do school remotely, forget about it. I'll put it off. I'll take a gap year or a two-year gap year. But it's a pretty steady clip of the percentage of the U.S. population that is becoming college educated. And that's been a while since I looked at it, but I want to say it's at like 60%. Hmm. Interesting. The scary thing is, is the number of people that start college, which is like 80%, and then people that, you know, by the age of 25 have attained a master's or not, which is like 60%, which means we have this huge, you know, dropout rate in colleges. And I think we need to kind of look at fixing that problem, the dropout rate in these schools first. And then we can kind of look at people that might have just like, hey, screw it. You know, I'm not going to go to college. And, you know, there are certain benefits of that. So, you know, I have a good relationship with a lot of people in the trades, you know, being an investor in multifamily. Mm-hmm. And my plumber has a bigger house in a nicer neighborhood than I did. <laughs> right? Um, and he didn't go to college. So, you know, you can make a good buck, but I really think you, you kind of got to be working for yourself. The people that are kind of, you know, forced into that retail or manufacturing, 
they're the ones that are kind of in trouble in terms of affording anything. Right. Interesting. So if we look at housing crashes, nothing, I'm a huge fan of Reddit. A lot of people like Reddit. And I know Reddit is completely dominated by millennials, but everything I read on like real estate investing or landlords or all these different subreddits is like, when is the crash coming? I want the crash to come because I need to buy a house. And I think all these millennials that, you know, they, the crash of 2008, they're thinking like, hey, look, this is a normal event, right? It happened 10 years ago. Maybe it's going to happen now. That was a, you know, kind of a once in a 75, 100 year type of event. Mm-hmm. If we look at the housing data going back to 1964, we have seen a total of three housing market corrections, right? So we saw a 13% correction in the late 1960s, early 1970s, a 2% correction in the 1990s, and then that was very geography-focused. So mostly the East Coast or Northeast and the West Coast, if your area is like Texas or Florida or Phoenix, for example, there was no housing correction in the 1990s. It kept on going. And then we had the you know 2008 housing market correction, which we can see here across the country was 26%. Again, people thinking like, well, Las Vegas and Phoenix, they were always making the news. And those had 50 to 60% correction in their housing prices. The U.S. average is only 26%. Areas along the coasts were far less. And areas within the coast, within kind of the core areas, so for example, again, being from, from Boston, I know that's the best, if you were to look at areas like Cambridge, Brookline, right, right along that, that inner core, that very first kind of high-end suburb, there's like a 5% correction in housing prices. And then you, if you went all the way out, caught an hour commute outside the city, then you were getting into the 30 40% corrections. So... You know, housing corrections are rare. They're not even across metros. They're not even even across or within the metro. So based upon this data and your professional opinion, are we unlikely to see a housing correction, a.k.a. a crash, anytime soon? I think we'll see a dramatic leveling off of the growth, and we may see a small decrease in prices. And I'll explain why, because we have a kind of a good parallel in the early 1980s. So again, the average decline across these three corrections from 1964 to 2022 is just 14%. And a lot of people, I think, conflate the stock market and the housing market. By the way, this housing correction here, or lack of a correction, if you get looking at the 1980s, we can see that interest rates hit 18%. There was no correction in prices because inflation was so high. If you were to look at real or adjusted for inflation numbers, we would see a decrease in housing. But, right, when we're only increasing interest rates generally to deal with interest drive, started to stop the inflation, right? So the inflation will carry the housing prices forward and we might end up with no nominal increase in housing prices. So again, kind of getting back to the stock market, people confusing the stock market with the housing market, looking at that same period, 1964, 2022, again, three corrections in the housing market, 11 in the S&P 500. And you're looking at a 13% correction in the housing market across those three, but across those 11 in the stock market, right, you're looking at an average decline of 33%. So don't confuse the stock market with the housing market. And for those people of your podcast that are real estate investors that are thinking of buying a house, 
I would compare it to like a 401k. So if you were to say, like, hey, look, you know, housing, if the stock market's too expensive, I think I'm going to wait three or four years to invest in my 401k, right? Most people go, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, compounding, you don't want to do that. You need to invest in the stock market, right? Dollar cost averaging, all that, right? I would say the same is true of the housing market. So it could be looking at a small decline in the housing prices over the next couple of years because of interest rates. Yes. Don't use that as a delay to buy a house. Um, because in general, if you're looking at buying a house for the long term, call it, hey, look, you know, I'm married now, I'm going to start having a family. I'm going to be in this house for probably 10 years, right? As long as you can ride through any downturns and back up the upturns with a few, you know, exceptions in areas like the Detroit where the, you know, the housing prices aren't coming back, right? You'll be okay in the long term. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about timing the market. So, Unless you think you're going to, you know, move, right? You're going to get relocated. You think you're going to get laid off, then don't buy a house. You're going to get divorced. Don't buy a house. But you're going to be, you think you're settled in that. Don't worry about the, the housing prices. You can go ahead and buy, buy a house. You know, if you looked at 1970, you're looking like, you're like, it was a better to buy a house in 74 or 76. Today, you're looking, well, they made a ton of money either way. Does it really matter? Demographics are only one half of the equation. Again, I mentioned supply. So let's look at, Single family supply. We are simply not building enough single family homes. We are not back to the levels that we had in the 1990s, let alone the early 2000s. And companies like Toll Brothers and Lennar, if you've been keeping up with the news, have had a complete freak out with the you know interest rates and housing prices. And they got burnt really badly in 2000 you know, seven, eight, nine, with the peak in the housing market. So again, if you're working for one of these, you know, large home builders, you're like, well, I'm not going to be the guy that lost money in the next housing correction. So they're dumping houses. They're selling houses at a discount for new construction in areas like Phoenix and Austin, things like that, where you have more prevalent home construction. But over the long term, we're simply not building enough, especially in dense urban areas. And the same is true of multifamily, right? You know, the number of units that we've been building, which is now a little bit above what it was from 1995 to 2010, but over that time, the population's been growing. We really should be adding, you should see, really, the number of houses, right, or multifamily projects and single-family homes increasing year after year. That's the only way to keep affordability. And a lot of that is due to, you know, NIMBYism. You know, that people will say you can't you can't build that here, you can't build that right, you can't build the same house in my neighborhood that you could in the nineteen forties, it won't let you. Right? It's got setbacks from your neighbors from the street, from the backyards, etc. FARs, things that did not exist in the nineteen forties and fifties and sixties when we seventies uh, when we actually were building enough housing for everybody. So to wrap all that up, demographics, because the millennials represent the largest demographic. Right, the largest cohort, and they're aging out of multifamily and into single family. Right, we're going to see maybe some near-term problems in multi-single family because of interest rates, uh, but no major corrections. Nothing like we saw in 2008. And you know, it's going to be harder to make a buck in multifamily over the next long-term five or ten years because of those same demographics. It's not necessarily necessarily a dire market. Why? Because we have a lack of multifamily construction that's helping. 
And, you know, because when we're talking about home prices, you know, we could see a dip in single family. Looking at history, what we saw in the 1980s when interest rates were 18%, we didn't see a decrease in housing prices. I think we'll see a flatlining of housing prices. Moderation, to use an economist term, from the 20% growth we saw down to about zero. We could also see a very modest decrease. Again, as inflation kind of carries prices forward. And, you know, a lack of, you know, construction in single family and multifamily will keep those markets healthy. But again, it's going to be a little harder to make a buck. Not, not impossible, but harder than it was from 2011 and 2019 than it will be over the next 10 years. Candidly, that is definitely true. And I'm glad that you're saying that because I think that, you know, there's a shift for investors in their expectations of what returns are going to look like. And the reality is, is, you know, it was a great ride. You know, a lot of money was made. There's still a lot of money to be made, but it's not going to be the skip and walk in the park, if you will, uh, that it was before. So I'm, I'm glad that you're pointing that out. Now, I do have one last question before we kind of jump into the lightning round questions, which is, you know, touching on construction. From my perspective, I am looking at the lack of development as kind of a long-term problem that's now compounded and made even worse by all of the issues that came up with the supply chain throughout the pandemic. It seems that it's going to take quite some time for that to be corrected. Out of curiosity, you know, what is your perspective on the supply chain role in this issue also? That was really kind of always out of my purview because I was not a, you know, housing developer. So I, I wouldn't really say no. I think it's going to impact the smaller guys more than the bigger guys. When I used to talk to some of the larger multifamily developers, they're like, look, we take a TEU, a shipping container, and we bring that right over from China and drop it right off on the site. So those guys are probably less impacted than your smaller builders that you know, have to go from their local, you know, supply warehouse. Hmm, interesting. All right. Well, thanks. I just uh, was curious what your perspective was on that also. All right. Well, Mark, this has been extremely interesting and very helpful, I'm sure, to our listeners as well as to me. I really appreciate you lending your expertise and your color to where we are right now in the economy and where we're likely to go forward. So thank you so much for a great presentation. Definitely appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Now, before we let you go, we have five questions that we ask every guest on the show just to keep it a little fun and light. So are you ready? Sure, sure. All right. So when you're not munching on data, what is an actual hobby of yours? Hobby? Mm. Well, with two kids, it's hard to have this as a hobby. I should try and sneak out to play basketball a couple of times a week. And I'd say that's the, you know, kind of the only hobby I have time for. Yeah, I can understand that season of life, definitely. All right, what is something interesting that most people don't know about you? I guess people always kind of see me as a numbers person, but when I was in high school, I was pretty good at art. And I had contemplated, you know, being an artist. And then I thought, you know, you could go to like New York City and like kick a, kick a trash can and like, you know, start an artist and like fall out. <laughs> but that was not the best kind of career move. And then as, as I got into, you know, undergraduate, I went to Syracuse University I could see what the top talent there looked like versus being out being in your high school being like a bit one of the better artists. And I was like, whoa, I, I can't compete with that. So I kind of made, I think, you know, the, the better long-term decision. But like I said, the one thing that people don't know that I, at least when I had more time, I like to draw. And I'm trying to draw with my kids now and get them into it. Nice, nice. All right. Now, what is a book that you are currently reading or that you just really believe is extremely important for everyone to include in their library? Any books? I don't know if I read too many books. Actually, I was devouring a book, you know, kind of like a, a book a month. 
in terms of when I was used to be on the T. When I first moved to Boston, I used to be day before cell phones or whatever, and I would just sit there like age 22, like staring at people on the T. Like, this is pretty boring. <laughs> but I saw that everyone had a book. So, you know, I decided to read a book, and I would go through about a, a book a month for 25 years or so. I love history. Uh, presently, I'm reading a very unexciting book about tenant, kind of uh, taxes for real estate investors. I always find that it's good to kind of brush up on that every five years in terms of, especially with the tax code changes that happened like, like in 2018. I'm like, oh, I should really read about that. I know it's three years from now, or three years ago, but I kind of figured I kind of want to know more of the tax changes in terms of how, how that I should be you know, presenting everything from my account when I do my taxes. Yeah, no, smart. Smart to stay on top of it. All right. And this question's a little out of left field, but we also, you know, aim to do this here. It's part of our vision. What is your advice for living an extraordinary life? Well, being the world's most boring person, I'm not just showing the best person to ask that question. <laughs> um, I will say because I read a lot, there is a, there's a book coming out soon. And in terms of, it's about happiness. And it's a study going back from people born in the 1930s all the way to today. And what they said about happiness is it didn't really matter how much money you made, believe it or not. It was all about relationships. So your relationships with other people. So I guess using that book, I would say that, you know, relationships always matter more than career or making money. And that's kind of a long-term pursuit to happiness. Wonderful advice. I love it. I often say something similar, which is it's the people in your life that make it what it is. Very true. Awesome. All right. And then last but not least, if our listeners would like to get in touch with you, how can they find you? They can email me. Let me give you a very complicated email address. (laughs) We'll be sure to include it in the show notes. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you can reach me at m-a-r-k-dot-o-h-l-c-i-d-h-e at yahoo.com or gmail.com, and that is the Irish spelling of my last name because every iteration of Mark Hickey, Hickey Mark, Mark underscore Hickey, Hickey underscore was already taken. <laughs> so I went with that. And people always ask me, well, what is that weird conglomeration of words next to your first name? And it's the Irish spelling of my last name. Very interesting. Okay, great. All right. And for the listeners, uh, we will also make a copy of these slides available to you. So be sure just to look into our show notes if you'd like to be able to pour over this very valuable data yourself. And we thank you so much for tuning in today. Please don't forget to rate and review and let us know what you think about the show or what you'd like to hear more of. And we just appreciate your time. So in the words of Ellie, be bold, be strong, and keep moving forward. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.